Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Hi, it's Erica, and I'm so grateful that you're tuning into my new podcast, Erica Taught Me. I'm a lawyer and entrepreneur, but what I'm really passionate about is helping people be smarter with their money. I want to help as many people as I can reach financial independence. If my voice sounds familiar, you might have already seen my videos on TikTok or Instagram. They usually end like this. Who taught you this? Erica taught me. She's a lawyer and reads the fine print, so I don't have to. That's why I follow her. But this podcast isn't just going to be about money. Building the financial life you want is so much more than just me giving you tips about how to invest or how to budget. In order to reach that financial independence where you don't have to worry about money, my philosophy is that you have to take a look at the big picture and make sure that the right foundations are in place. So that's my goal with this podcast. I interview people who I know will help you to improve your life. Some of the episodes are going to be inspiring. You'll hear from people who started with nothing and built million dollar businesses. Some episodes will be more practical, like how you can negotiate that raise you've always wanted, how to travel for free using credit card points, how to increase your happiness, or how to reset your money mindset and overcome those financial blocks you have. Just like I read the fine print so you don't have to, these guests have become experts on their topics so that you don't have to. So if that sounds good to you, join me every Tuesday for a new episode. Now let's jump in. You don't have to worry about whether you're doing it quote unquote right or wrong. If it's working for you and it's making you happy, then maybe it's the right thing to do. There is no one right answer in finance. In investing, like we know, it's not intuitive for people when he was a child and his refrigerator was empty and his mom had $3 to her name. And he said, look, $3 is not going to fill the refrigerator. It's not going to make a dent. But $3 will buy you three lottery tickets that will give you the potential to fill the refrigerator. By far the biggest problem for new investors is not understanding how much time is needed to put the odds of success in your favor. If you wanted to break it down like the simplest terms, live below your means, save the difference, invest for the long term and like be diversified. Be very wary of certainty, including like certainty in forecasts. Like if someone says, we know that a recession is going to come in the next six months, or someone says, we know this stock is going to double. Any level of confidence like that is just not how the world works. There's a lot of advice out there that is either bad advice or it's good advice for one person, but not for you.
Morgan Housel is a behavioral finance expert and the author of the best-selling book, The Psychology of Money. We're going to be talking today about how you can be smarter with your finances and how psychology plays a huge role in your relationship with money. This book was my personal favorite read of the year, so it's such an honor to be having this conversation. I'm Erica Kohlberg, this is Erica Taught Me, and today we're here with Morgan Housel. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. Morgan, I'm so happy to have you here. So I want to first talk about your book that has sold millions of copies. It's really resonated with people. What is the story that people say, wow, that really had an impact on me or that really helped me to understand this concept of personal finance? I think one that resonated a lot and resonated with me personally too, it was maybe my favorite, is just the idea that there is no one right answer in finance. I think we tend to think of finance and finance is taught like it's math. And in math, there's one right answer for everybody. No matter who you are or where you're from or how old you are, it's just like two plus two equals four for everybody. That's how math works. And finance is, I just, in my view, it's not like that at all. That people who are equally smart, equally educated, equally informed can come to totally different conclusions about how to manage their money. And I think once you embrace that, it does two things. One, it makes you less cynical about other people and less judgmental about how other people are spending their money. And two, it gives you permission to just be like, what works for you? You don't have to worry about whether you're doing it, quote unquote, right or wrong. If it's working for you and it's making you happy, then maybe it's the right thing to do. And there are things that I do with my own money, my wife and I do with our own money, that are probably the quote-unquote wrong thing to do. That if you looked at it on a spreadsheet, you would say, oh, you should be doing this differently. But it works for us, and it makes us happy, and it helps us sleep well at night. So therefore, it's the right thing for us to do. And I think once you have that little nugget of like, nobody's crazy. People do crazy things, but everything that people do with their money makes sense to them. It works for them. And yes, there's always room for improvement, and people can be misinformed and do things that they're going to regret, and we should try to help them understand what their options are. But people do so many different things with their money. Can I give you one quick story that's in the book that I really liked? The majority of lottery tickets in the United States are purchased by the poorest Americans, the lowest decile of income earners by the majority of lottery tickets. Now, someone like me or you might look at that and say, that's crazy. These people who can barely feed themselves are buying scratcher tickets. That makes no sense. It's not rational. I have a friend who's a financial advisor. He's successful now, but he grew up in abject poverty. He was homeless most of his childhood. And he told me a story one time that he remembers when he was a child and his refrigerator was empty and his mom had $3 to her name. And he said, look, $3 is not going to fill the refrigerator. It's not going to make a dent. But $3 will buy you three lottery tickets 
that will give you the potential to fill the refrigerator. And he said, until you can understand that mindset, you don't understand why these poor people are buying so many lottery tickets. When it's your only chance of hope, of literally feeding your kids in this situation, it doesn't make sense. So that's an extreme example, but it just shows like there's so much going on inside of people's heads and there's no one right answer of what's, what's the right thing to do. Then I think all of us just need to find out what works for us, be a little more introspective about who we are and what we want and what our goals are, our social aspirations are, and just find a plan that works for us. So I've also been, as I've started creating content around personal finance, I feel like a lot of people ask me, okay, what is the formula? How do I do it? And I was thinking about how this relates to dieting. Like, people love the 10,000 steps a day. For whatever reason, that was so formulaic that it really resonated and stuck with a bunch of people. And people can remember that, 10,000 steps a day. Dave Ramsey's Save $1,000. People remember that because that's formulaic. It applies across the board, according to him. And people resonate with that again. So while I, I agree that personal finance is personal, I feel like some people are just looking for a formula. What is the closest thing to a formula you could give them? That's a great question because I don't know the answer off the top of my head. If the formula was like, if you wanted to break it down in like the simplest terms of like live below your means, save the difference, invest in for the long term and like be diversified. Like it's probably something, I would say it's something really broad and non-specific like that. I think once people get into a formula of like save X percent, then it's really different. Like, are, do you make $10,000 a year? Do you make $10 million a year? That's a big difference. One of my qualms, if you're watching like CNBC to invest, and you'll see the guy on CNBC who's like, you should sell Apple stock. And I want to be like, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the 19-year-old day trader? Are you talking to the widow living on a fixed income? Because the advice is going to be completely different there. So it's like, yeah, if, if there was a formula of like, live below your means, save for the long term, but that's so dry and non-specific, but I honestly think that's as, in my view, that's as close to a formula as you can get. You just mentioned 10,000 steps. Okay, great. Save $1,000 from Dave Ramsey. Like, yeah, wonderful. But there's still going to be so many people who listen to that and might say, I can't save $1,000 or $1,000. I make, I make a quarter million dollars a year. That's not, so like, there's still a large number of people who are going to listen to that and say, I, I, that doesn't apply to me specifically. And I think it's almost like diet too, where are there principles of diet? Like eat your vegetables, eat like, yes, but there's also going to be people who are like, uh, I'm gluten intolerant. So this doesn't work for me. And that doesn't, there's, there's going to be so many differences within the group. Yeah. And I think spe- especially for financial content, when by definition, you hope that so many different people are going to be watching this, all different ages, different income groups, the more specific it gets, the more dangerous I get. It, the more dangerous it gets. I think that's what's so dangerous about something like CNBC, where they're giving universal advice to a wide audience. No, that totally makes sense. While I agree that maybe there's no specific formula, do you think that there are principles that apply across the board? I know in your book, one of the things you talk about is the, this principle of greed and wanting things quicker, wanting your money to double quicker and not having that patience and the, long, the long-term vision for your money. Is that something that you think applies to everyone? I think it's true that in most endeavors in life, there's a pretty quick payoff. So like if you go to the gym, you'll be sore tomorrow. There's an indication that something's working. If you're, if you're on like a new diet, you might feel different that day, the next day. It's a pretty quick thing. And so people take those payoff time periods and when they apply it to investing, if they're new to investing, they might think, oh, I'm going to invest $1,000 and I'm going to check back next Wednesday and see how it's done. And then, or maybe I'll check back, you know, two weeks from now and see what's in. Six months feels like a long time. Because if you were going to the gym for six months and you saw no progress, you're like, you're doing something wrong here. 
But in investing, like we know, it's not intuitive for people, but this is an endeavor where you might lose money over a 10-year period, and that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Investing is a very, very long endeavor. I think the closest example is like planting an oak tree. Like it takes, if you planted a seed in your backyard and checked it next Wednesday, and you're like, oh, it doesn't work, it's a scam. <laughs> you're like, no, it just, it takes a long time. And the results are gonna be magnificent, but it's gonna take 50 years. And I think investing is really close to that, and it throws a lot of people off. By far the biggest problem for new investors is not understanding how much time is needed to put the odds of success in your favor. And it's not a month, it's not a year, it's something closer to five or 10 years before you're like, okay, if you've given it that much time, you should start to see most likely whether you're doing it right or wrong. But even in that scenario, even in 10 years, if you're doing it right, it's not without precedent at all that maybe you've done fairly poorly. If the economy's doing really poorly, if there's a financial crisis, if there's a pandemic, whatever it might be. So that's what it's, it's really a lifelong endeavor. And that's what screws people up if they're not familiar with that time frame. Besides the time horizon, what do you think are also the biggest mistakes that people are making when, they're, when it comes to their money? I think there is a lot of money to be made in the money business. And because of that, there is a lot of bad advice. And there are a lot of people who look fairly reputable and sound fairly reputable who are Scam is the wrong word because that implies it's, it's illegal. I think you're, you're the lawyer, maybe you know. But there are a lot of people who I think mean well, but they operate in a system where the incentives push them to giving not the best advice and charging outrageous amounts for it. I always think like one of the best financial skills you can have is a very finely tuned BS detector so that you can see an ad or hear a pitch and say like, I'm not saying you're a bad person, but that's a bad product that you're selling. Having that, that sensitivity is really important. And a lot of people don't because there are a lot of other fields in their life that are pretty heavily regulated, medicine and whatnot. If you go to a doctor who has an MD, you can be reasonably sure. I'm, I'm not saying there's no bad doctors, but you can be reasonably sure that they are educated and tested and qualified. And the advice that they give you is very likely good advice. And in the finance world, there are things like CFP and CFA, these credentials that are pretty good, but there's no requirement that you have them. If you get surgery, that, that person has to have an MD. This would be a licensed surgeon. You can go to a financial advisor who has very few credentials. Maybe they took a regulatory exam that took them two weeks to study for. They have a degree from Google, effectively, and they can be a financial advisor. And so a lot of people kind of get taken for a ride because of this. And there are a lot of also just online, again, I'm not going to use the word scams, but just things online that want to push you in one direction or the next that leads to a lot of bad advice. And a lot of these two are not even commercial products to buy, but there's just so many blogs and social media feeds. I'm, I'm one of them. I'm not going to throw them all under the bus, but there's a lot of advice out there that is either bad advice or it's good advice for one person, but not for you. And I think having that sensitivity to information is really critical for new investors. But it's so hard, though, I imagine, for these new investors when they don't, when you don't understand what you're looking for, it's hard, even if you have a good BS meter in general, it's very hard to know, like, what is, who is good and who's looking out for you truthfully and who's Super good hard. for your specific personal finances versus who is not, right? Like, if someone wears a suit and speaks very confidently, it's kind of easy to feel like, oh, they're trustworthy. So easy, especially when you know, the stakes are really high in money. This is sending your kids to college. This is retiring. This is not just a little game. This is like one of the biggest areas of your life. And since it's generally not taught in high school or even, or even college, even if you are a very smart woman, very smart guy, highly educated, you have a degree in chemical engineering, you might know nothing about money. 
But I always say like the two areas of your life that are going to impact everyone, no matter they, whether they like it or not, are health and money. It doesn't matter if you don't like those fields, those fields are going to impact yeah, they're you. <laughs> they're there. They're going to impact your life. So the fact that we don't generally don't teach those fields in school has always been crazy to me, but it also just makes it so that even very educated people who are not gullible in any other area of their life kind of get taken for a ride very often. What are some red flags that people can look out for? So if you're mentoring someone who's 20 years old, new to this world of personal finance and money, what would you say, hey, if someone says buy this product or do this with your money, what's the red flag that they should look out for? I'd say in general, be very wary of certainty, including like certainty and forecasts. Like if someone says, we know that a recession is going to come in the next six months, or someone says, we know this stock is going to double. Any level of confidence like that is just not how the world works. The best that you can do when you're studying the economy or investment markets is just putting the odds of success in your favor. So the best you could do is be like, we're 60% confident in buying this stock. And if it's not pitched that way, if it's pitched in any level of this is a sure thing, run for your life. Because it just does not exist in this world. Outside of an FDIC-insured savings account, certainty does not exist in the finance world. But certainty is what sells. And so that's why a lot of the pitches that are online promote this degree of certainty that I think could be really dangerous. That, that's, that's, that's a big red flag. Those are really good. So anything guaranteed results. If they say, oh, if you invest in this stock, you're going to double your money. That's obviously a big red flag. What is it about this industry that you see people on TV saying, oh, there's going to be a recession. Oh, buy this stock. What is their incentive there? I think, again, there's so much money to be made in finance. If you think... I mean, in the United States, for financial assets, stocks, bonds, checking accounts, it's over $100 trillion. It's like unfathomable amount of money. And globally, it's several hundred trillion dollars. If you are in the finance world and you're taking 1% of that as a fee, it's a lot of money. Incredible amount of money you, that you can make. And you know, in fields like investment banking and whatnot, you have the people who can graduate college and make half a million dollars a year out of undergraduate college. And they're smart people. These are not just any Joe from the street, but relative to other industries, there's so much money to be made in finance. And because of that, I think otherwise moral, good, well-meaning people, when they are introduced to a system where their incentives are to promote certainty or to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes, even if they're otherwise good people, these are not shysters, they are willing to sell products that are not good for people because they have the potential to make so much money themselves. I think that was true like during the financial crisis when there was so much of 2008, when there was so much view of like the greedy Wall Street bankers who ruined, who ruined the world. That was kind of like the narrative at the time. One kind of unpopular opinion that I had was I think 99% of those people were very good, moral, honest in people who were operating in a system of terrible incentives. And most of us who may have been saying that, the greedy bankers who ruin the world, underestimate how you and I may have acted if someone said, hey, 22-year-old Erica, I'll give you $4 million if you package these subprime loans and sell them to widows and orphans. You know, I think a lot of us underestimate what, yeah. we, what we would have done in that situation. And because those incentives exist in finance in a way that they don't in medicine or engineering, or any other field like that. It really kind of, you have this boom-bust cycle of where the incentives kind of pile up and you have a big financial bubble and then everything comes crashing down. I know that you've been in the finance space for a long time, over, over a decade that you've been writing about 
finance and personal finance. Do you think what's happened with social media and the accessibility now of personal finance information through social media is overall a good thing for people? Or do you think it is a bad thing because it is even now harder to differentiate between possibly the bad actors with ulterior motives versus the good ones who actually want to give good personal finance tips to everyone? This is a boring answer, but I think it's the truth. I think it's on net good, but it's very slim. I think I'm making this up, but I think it's like 51% amazing and 49% terrible. Like it, it evens out to where it's like, I, I think it's an on net a good thing. And it's a good thing because if you go back to the world before social media, most financial advisors were gatekeepers. If you were just an average Joe and you wanted to invest for your retirement, you want to buy a mutual fund, you need to book an appointment with a guy down the street, go into his office, you know, wear your suit and tie, like wait in the waiting room so you could go have permission to invest in the stock market and pay him an egregious fee and commission to do it. That was the world that existed like 15 years ago, not that long ago. And I think it's a wonderful thing that it has been democratized so much, not just the access to financial products, but the access to information. And I don't think it's an exaggeration that an 18-year-old with an iPhone today has more financial information than a partner at Goldman Sachs did 20 years ago. That's not an exaggeration. It's like, so a lot of those people were just information gatekeepers too, the financial advisors. If you was, like, forget buying a mutual fund. If you wanted to know what mutual funds existed 20 years ago, you had to go talk to that guy and pay him a crazy fee. And you don't anymore. So a lot of those financial advisors who are like commission-based, a lot of them don't exist anymore because it's been so democratized, both the information and the product access. That's an amazing thing. The other side of that, though, are the number of people who are either promoting products they shouldn't be or people who are innocently putting advice on social media and whatnot, that they are very innocently, they're just naive to the fact that it might be bad advice to somebody else. They're not doing it. You can't criticize them. But if there's someone who went on and said like, oh, everyone should buy this stock, they just might not have the knowledge or haven't thought through that a 16-year-old in his mother's basement might listen to that, put his entire life savings into it and lose everything because he didn't know what the consequences of it were. So I think there's a lot of innocent bad information out there as well. You can't just put everyone in as like a bad actor. A lot of it is, is really innocent. And I encourage, I think it's great that if you are someone who's interested in finance, and you want to start a blog, start doing TikTok, start making YouTube. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. But if you turned it a little bit and said, should everyone who's interested in medicine start posting medical advice? In that situation, you're like, eh, might, <laughs> might not be a great idea. But we do that with finance. So that's why like, I can see both sides of it. And on net, I, I prefer this world to the old world, full, full stop. Yeah. It's, we're in a better position. But it is not without consequences. I'm with you on that. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Things like what happened with Dogecoin would not have happened pre-social media. No way. There's no or way you even could social build that. media five years ago. Yeah. It was not that established. And things like GameStop uh, in early 2021, these things that would have been unfathomable like 24 months ago are now the reality of, of the world we live in. I think a lot of that was COVID-related too, where people who would otherwise be watching football games, going out with their friends, were all of a sudden stuck inside. And the only thing that you could do, all the sports were shut down in 2020, the only thing you could do was day trade. And the explosion in Robinhood accounts and crypto trading in 2020, you can mark it to the day of, that the lockdowns began. It just exploded after that. And again, I think a lot of it is great that a lot of these young people, teens and 20s, are now active participants in investing. And even if they are doing it in ways that they will regret, 
I would much rather that someone make, learn how finance works and learn how risk works when they're 19 yeah. versus when they're 45 and putting their kids through college. Like, it's actually great to the extent that Robinhood was sucking in a bunch of young investors. I'm kind of like, that's, I, even if they end up regretting what they did, and a lot of them already have, I think that's actually a good thing. I think so, because I think a lot of the fear of investing comes from not having done it at all. I thought investing was a thing for the rich. And it, all it took was me investing my first $20 to be like, wow, maybe someone like me can do it too. Yeah. And so I do think ultimately it is a good thing. Yeah. But I think, you know, you learn these lessons very quickly if you invest in something and it goes down 98%, like, oh, maybe, maybe that was the wrong thing to invest in. And a lot of it will be an unfortunate takeaway. If you have someone who was young and new to investing and they invested all of their money into call options on Robinhood and lost everything. And that just, what I just described is like millions of investors were in that situation. The takeaway that they might come away with is investing is a scam and I'm never going to invest again. In my view, that's the wrong takeaway. The, the takeaway is like you should just not have invested in call options or penny stocks or bankrupt companies, but investing in a more diversified way in more established companies is not only the right thing to do, but is absolutely critical to your retirement and sending your kids to a college eventually. Like it's a really critical part of the rest of your life. So that's, that is one downside is like if they get scarred so much because of what's happened in the last six months during when tech stocks have exploded, yep. imploded, if that scares them away for life, then that's, that's a bad thing. And I do think a lot of these platforms, you know, they would pitch themselves as democratizing investing, but really what they're doing was, was promoting trading, which is very different from investing. Those are two different beasts. I don't look down upon traders. I'm not going to say it's wrong. But I think for a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm not that interested in finance. I'm not a finance nut. I don't want to be doing this 24-7. Those people should probably be investing. Now, if you are a finance nut and you love this stuff and you want to be a trader, like, I think that's great. That's amazing. But I think there are a lot of people who wanted to be investors who are pushed into a trading product and end up having a bad experience with it. Just for the people who are listening and may not know the difference between an investor and a trader, can you kind of go into how you define that? I think a lot of it is the difference between like investing in a business for the long term where I'm going to buy Apple stock because I believe in their products and their products are going to generate profits and those profits will accrue to me as an investor over the next 20 years. That's, that's investing. Investing in a business for the business results. Trading is I'm going to buy a stock because I think the stock price will go up over the next week. And it's more of a speculative endeavor. And you might be right about that bet. You might make money doing it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's a speculation that a stock price might rise versus I'm investing in a business whose profits are going to be paid out to me as dividends over the next 10 or 20 years. So part of it is time horizon and part of it is just like the bet that you're making and why you are attracted to that company. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting though, how it all goes back to the psychology because you think about the story you told about the lottery ticket. Why is GameStop so much more exciting than saying, hey, invest in a low cost index fund, right? It's because there's that hope that, wow, my, I could double, triple my money in a short period of time yeah. versus, oh, on average, it returns 10% year over year. Right. And here's, I think a lot of people don't, like their expectations are really inflated. I remember someone on Twitter last year when markets were going crazy high last year, they tweeted me and they said, if you can't double your money every year in the stock market, you have no idea what you're doing. And I remember being like, there's like a sentiment check of where we are in the world. <laughs> but also, like, I don't blame them because that, if you're new to investing, you might think that is totally reasonable. But the actual statistics is like, if you can earn 12% per year, you're a hero. 
in this market. If you can earn 15% a year for your career, you are in the Mount Rushmore of investors over time. Like on average, for the last 100 years, the stock market in America has returned 10% on average annually. If you can outperform that by 1% per year and earn 11%, you're amazing. You're one of the top professional investors in the world, literally. And so those are the expectations to anchor to. When that's the world, like 11% annually is amazing. When you have people who think that you should earn 100% annually, they're so disconnected from the reality of what's likely to occur. And maybe they go through a period where they actually did double their money in one year, but there's just a reversion to the mean that's all gonna come back to bite them, which is exactly what's happened over the last six months. Yeah. Do you remember when you first invested your first $100? Yeah. How old were you and what were you investing in? I was 19 and I was day trading a bankrupt steel company. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea. And then I, that didn't work. I lost money doing that. And then I tried day trading other stocks. And then I tried holding stocks for a month and none of it worked. And I don't regret any of that. I lost a lot of money doing that, but it was a great learning process. I think there's one thing I did right. It's that I learned quickly. Like, no, that, that didn't work. Let's try something <laughs> else. Rather than just being like stubborn and being like, I got to keep trying this over and over and over again. And it, it took me a long time to get to where I am now and how I invest, which we can talk about if you want. But I would also say, before I get into that, I'd say, there's a good chance that I will change how I invest in the future. The idea that I figured I, I have it all figured out now, I think is, is pretty naive. And there's a good chance that 10, 20 years from now, I will look back and I will say that how I invested today and even things that are written in my book that I will disagree with. I actually hope that's the case. I hope I'm not, I hope my view of the world and my learning of the world didn't peak at this age. I hope I, I go on to learn more things and change how I invest. But it is interesting, as I was reading your book, I know a lot of these finance books, they have to be updated every year, every two years, because some of what's written is, becomes irrelevant. Yeah. But your book, to me, it strikes me as very timeless principles. Do you have specific chapters that you're looking at you think might have to be rewritten in five years? I mean, the one thing that sticks out is I finished writing it in December 2019, so just before COVID started. I think there's one sentence on COVID in the book because we didn't want to look like we were oblivious to it, so I threw it in. But I wrote all of that before COVID. Now, there's nothing that disagrees. With, there's nothing that says something like COVID can't happen, but COVID changed a lot of people's views of risk, including mine. I don't, again, I don't think there's anything that I would change in the book, but you go through these events in life, 9-11, 2008, COVID, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, how I thought the world works is actually not how it actually works. And I think you and I and everyone else over the rest of our lives, hopefully we live another 50 plus years, you know, I think historically, every 10 years, something happens in the world that shatters people's worldviews. Again, like 9-11 and whatnot. It just something happens where you're like, oh, I had this view of the future and I now, it's wrong and I need to readjust. Or even at the personal level, if you have some personal crisis, your view of what you thought the future is going to be can change in an instant, whether it's a medical condition or whatever it might be. So I don't know what the event would be. But I'd be highly confident that in 20 years, there'll be some massive global event that changes how I think about risk. I've told this story before, but it was, it was pretty telling. So I write about this stuff for a living and have for more than a decade about investing psychology and stay calm and whatnot. My wife and I had this longstanding plan to sell our house in Virginia in uh, April of 2020. Well before COVID, that was our plan. We're gonna, we're gonna put our house on the market in April. In hindsight, like the worst timing possible because April 2020 was peak COVID panic. The yeah. economy was melting down. The unemployment rate was higher than it was during the Great Depression. 
And so in March of 2020, I called our realtor and I said, hey, I know the plan was to put it on the market in April, but I want to put it on the market right now, tomorrow. And he said, he said, Morgan, don't panic. And I said, oh, I'm panicked. <laughs> you are looking panic in the face right now. And I'm someone who wrote a book about like, don't panic. And in that situation, I, I did. I don't regret it because we were going to sell anyways. And it ended up fine. The house sold. It was like no problem. But there's a big difference between how you think you're going to react when everything is calm and everyone's happy versus when you're actually in the trenches experiencing it firsthand. There could be a big gap between that. And I would say in general, most people think they have a high risk tolerance when everything's going well. Yeah. When you're gainfully employed and happy and healthy. And I said, Erica, how, what's your risk tolerance like? You'd probably be like, oh, it's great. If the market fell 30%, I think it's an opportunity. It's great. But then when you actually, you're, one of these big events happens and there's a pandemic that might kill you and your family and you might be heading into the next Great Depression, then you think differently about the world. So that's why it's like, I, I know that whether it's personal or global, there will be something that happens in my life where I'm like, ah, I think differently now. And I don't think that's bad. I don't regret it. It's just everyone is constantly learning how the world works and what they want. That's another side of this is that I'm sure that my wife and I and my kids will have different goals, different aspirations in my 50s than I did in my 30s, of course. So it would be naive for me to think that I've got this all figured out for the next 50 years. It's just not how it works. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Yeah, you're so right. I remember in March 2020, my dad, who to me is very much like a patient person with his money, he understands that, look, just hold on for the long term. But he's a couple of years away from retirement. So he saw his 401k just crashing. And when you're versus me many years out, when you're a few years away from retirement and you see your retirement having like that, scary. that's scary. And that elicits this emotional response that you couldn't have predicted two days before, five days before, yeah. right? Yeah, and what was, what was really bad about COVID too is that, so in 2008, the financial crisis, that was a financial crisis. The thing that was happening was in finance. COVID added this whole other element of it was a financial crisis and a health crisis. Not only did your dad's 401k cut in half, but I'm sure he was worried that he might die. That's what everyone was worried about in the time. So it was like this double whammy of fear at the time that really just 
shook people in a, in a, in a way that they'll never forget. <laughs> yeah. So I know that 50 years from now, you might have a different theory, but what is your approach today to investing? So the other thing I make clear in my book is that this is not advice. And that's not, not just to make the lawyers happy. Like everyone invests differently. So just, just because this is what I do doesn't mean that it's what you not should Not financial do. advice. Not, not financial <laughs> advice for everyone. I'm a, I'm a passive investor. I invest mostly in index funds, which are very broad, low-cost, diversified funds. And I plan on holding them for 50 plus years. I never sell. And I do what's called dollar cost averaging. So I invest the same amount of money every single month, come hell or high water, every month and the first of the month, the same dollar amount over and over again. It's not based off of where I think the market's going to go next or what the economy's doing. It's just a consistent system to invest a little bit more for as long as I can and hold that for as long as I can. So that's how I invest in the stock market. We have, my wife and I have a fairly high percentage of cash as our net worth. Like if most financial advisors looked at it, they'd say like, what's going on here? Are you saving for a new house or whatnot? And I always say, no, it's, I'm saving for a world that I know is going to take me and everyone else for a wild ride. And I think most people, most people think about risk. They only think about the risks that they can envision, that the risks that make sense to them. And the thing that we know about risk is that the biggest risk is always what you don't see coming. I've, just, I've used like 9-11, 2008, and COVID. Nobody saw those things coming before they had destroyed the world effectively. And be, and at the personal level, it's the same. Very few people see a divorce coming. Very few people see cancer coming. It's just, it, it, and, and most people think it's not going to happen to them until it does. So I have a higher level of cash than most people because I want to stay cognizant that even if things are going well now, like things change and change abruptly. So in a world where risk is what you don't see coming, you need to have a level of conservatism in your finances that seems like it's a little bit too much. Because if you're only planning for the risks that you can see, you're going to miss the surprise 10 times out of 10. So that's, those are my like, high-level finance philosophies. Investing low-cost, diversified for the next 50 years, and a fairly level of, a high level of conservatism. I like to think of it as like saving like a pessimist and investing like an optimist. Yeah. I want to save my money with the idea that like, oh, the world's fragile and my career might be fragile and I want to be prepared for that so I can endure it. But I invest with the idea that like, if I can endure it and put up with all the ups and downs, then if I can stay invested for 50 years, the results will be incredible. It's like that barbell personality. Besides this, investing in the stock market, do you have real estate, other investments? We own our house. And I write in the book, we own it outright, which is I'd write it was the worst financial decision we could have ever made, but the best money decision we, ever, we could have ever made. That's an important thing. That's one of the things that like, I can't explain on a spreadsheet, why we don't have a mortgage. Because up until six months ago, you could have got a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage for 2.5%, basically free money. And not having a mortgage helps us sleep better at night. We like the feeling that it gives us. So that's another like saving like a pessimist. I put it in that camp. Like I can't show you on a spreadsheet. I can't justify on a spreadsheet why we did it. But for like moral reasons in our household, it's the best money decision that we've ever made. So that's the only real estate that we have. And then other than that, other than, I mean, our, effectively our entire net worth is a house, a checking account, and index funds. That's 99% of our net worth. And I think it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. There's always an assumption that the more complicated your finances, the better you'll do. I think that's like a knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, how can I make it more sophisticated? And I think it's almost always wrong. It's yeah. almost always the case that simpler is going to be better. Most, so much of the time, I know it sounds cynical, but a lot of times complexity in finance is just an excuse for higher fees. But the results that come from it are always, like, rarely show up. 
So I think the more simple it can be, A, I love that I can like wrap my head around my finances in two seconds. I don't, it, it's so easy for me to track and think about. And B, I think it, when it's that simple, you're cutting out so many middlemen from the equation to make it as low fee as possible, which I, and I think is, for us at least, the right way to do it. How are you thinking about crypto? See, I don't, I don't, I don't own any, so I could probably stop there and say that's how <laughs> I feel about it. But I also would not in a million years bet against it either. Yeah. I have no FOMO in finance, a fear of missing out. Like it does not bother me in the slightest that when other people do better than me. So I would, it would not surprise me in the slightest if crypto does amazing things, completely changes the world. I also, if there is one view on crypto that I have, it's like, if you don't find a lot of it incredible, you're not paying attention. And if you don't find a lot of it absurd, you're not paying attention. You get like both of those things. And actually in any new industry, it's always like that. I always use the example of like in the early 1900s, there were 2000 car companies and 1,997 of them went bankrupt. And three of them, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, like went on to change the world. Yeah. In any new industry, it's like that. In the 80s, there were like dozens of PC companies. And it ended up as like Hewlett Packard and Dell and a couple of others. There's always in any new industry, like a massive washout. 99% of new entrants go, just disappear. And crypto will be no different than that. Whether that'll take six months or six years, but I would have high confidence that 99% of new crypto projects today won't exist. But as an industry, it can still do very well if the 1% that stick around become trillion dollar companies. That's what happened with GM, Ford, and Chrysler. Like if you invested in every automaker in the early 1900s, even if 99% went bankrupt, you still did pretty well. But then the question is, do people have the iron gut that lets them do that? Like do crypto investors, if they make 100 investments, are you okay that 99% of them might go under? And are, do you have all of your hope that crypto and, and, and ETH might, or that Bitcoin and ETH might be the, are the winners? If people have that mentality and they think they have that risk tolerance, then I would say, I would say great. But that's the whole industry of all of these, the whole history of all these industries, not just crypto, is like yeah. whenever there's a big innovation, there's going to be a massive, massive washout. And not like volatility, but these projects just disappearing forever. Yeah. I know, so you've gone the very conservative route of low-cost S&P 500 index funds, I assume. Do you have a portion allocated to just individual stocks that, of companies you believe in? I'm on the board of directors of a company called Markel. So I have a lot of Markel stock, as a, <laughs> as a, as a, a board director should. I have a lot of skin in the game. I have some Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett's company. He was a big inspiration early on. So almost for sentimental reasons, I haven't gotten rid of that. Have you been to the annual shareholders? Space? Many times. It's cool. Really? Yeah, yeah it's, a re- it's a really cool time time to go. It's 40,000 investors that show up and it's crazy. A lot of times, the last couple of times I've gone, I haven't, I've gone to Omaha during that time, but I actually don't go inside to the shareholder meeting. It's turned into just like an excuse for friends to meet at the place. <laughs> it's kind of a pathetic way <laughs> that people have- But why don't you go in? Because they say the same things over and over again every <laughs> single year. They don't say anything new. And everything is like live stream. You can watch it afterwards. If it's you were to summarize what excuse. he says year after year, what is it? Uh, we don't know what the market's going to do next. Buy cheap stocks. Politics is crazy. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> That's effectively it. But even, I remember, even Warren Buffett has the most legendary investor out there, has really changed his views on things. Yeah. You look at what he, the bet he made on Apple. It's the bet, in dollar terms, he's made more money on Apple than anything else he's ever invested Which in. Which is insane. In one of his annual shareholders meetings, he said that, like, I will not invest in companies I do not understand. Yeah. And that was a company he didn't understand before he actually invested in it. Yeah. And 
people, I don't think people would have seen, would have been able to see that, that he would invest and that would go on to be his, his number one pick. I think the hallmark of a good investor is that they can perform well in multiple different economic cycles and in multiple different assets. That's how you can really separate skill from luck. Because like during any given economic cycle where, or any market cycle where things are, are booming, by luck alone, you're going to have people who are very, very successful and some of whom make billions of dollars. The only way to tell whether they are not lucky is during the next economic cycle when there's a new crop of investments, new industries. Do they do well then too? And Warren Buffett has been successfully investing for 80 years. And I think, honestly, every 10 years, he's almost completely updated his views. There are a lot of core principles that don't change, yeah. which are the, the principles that are really important. But in terms of what industries he's investing in, how he values them, what he's looking for, there's constant update. I think that's a, a big area that people get wrong about him, is that he's kind of been stuck in the past and has been investing the same way forever. If you look at how he invested in the 1950s, could not be more different than how he invests today. So I think that's why he's been successful is because he is willing to learn. I think he's just a learning machine yeah. in ways that most investors are not. I mean, it's well known that he, his investing process is sitting on the couch reading a book 10 hours a day. He's not trading. He's not on the phone with his broker. He's just trying to learn how the world works and updating his view and using the core principles that never change and, and applying those core principles to how the world has evolved and where the world is today. What would you say are his core principles? I mean, he wants to invest in companies that have good, honest, competent CEOs. He wants to invest at a good price and make sure he's not paying a too rich valuation. And he wants to invest, as you mentioned, in a company that he understands and a business that he understands so that he has a high degree of confidence, at least in where the industry is going. Those are the really basic core principles. Now, someone like Buffett could talk for two weeks straight about the details of those topics that I just mentioned. It's not that simple. He's the best at it, and he's the richest, one of the richest men in the world because he's so good at the details of those principles. But at the very highest level, that's really what it is. It's buying good companies at a good price and holding them for a very long time. Yeah, but a, a distinction I, I actually learned from you is that he is one of the best investors out there, but actually in terms of performance, his win is that he's been doing it for so long. Yeah. You, you talk about this in your book, right? Yeah, so like, if you look at Warren Buffett's net worth, He's 90 years old, 91 or two, something like that. And he's worth $100 billion. And he's given away about $50 billion. So let's say he's worth $150 billion if you count what he's given away. 99% of that money was accumulated after his 50th birthday. And like 98% came after his 65th birthday. So literally, if Buffett had retired at age 65, like a normal person might, you would have never heard of him. He never would have accumulated a fraction of what he actually has. And the other part of this is that he started investing full-time when he was 11 years old. So by the time that he was in his 20s, he was adjusted for inflation. He was worth over $10 million in his early 20s. So he'd been that successful investing during yeah. that time. If he had started investing when he was 25, again, like a normal person might, you would have never heard of him. The whole secret to his success is that he's been a good investor not an amazing investor, but a very good investor for 80 years. And the time is everything in there. And it's so easy to overlook that because everyone in the industry, when they're trying to answer the question, like, how has he done it? How is he so successful? They go into all this grand detail about how he values companies and what he looks for in products and market cycles. When really the big takeaway, especially for everyday people like you and I, the big takeaway is he's been doing this for 80 years. That's, that's the takeaway. And I think for ordinary people, even if you're not as good an investor as he is, if you can earn average returns for an above average period of time, it equals magic. 
in investing. Like, yeah. like the time is everything. And especially if you're a young investor listening to this, if you're in your teens or early 20s, early 30s, whatever it might be, the amount of time you have in front of you is an asset that Warren Buffett, who's 92, cannot even dream of. And even if you are a teenager and you don't have a lot of money, you are like a time millionaire. You don't have a lot of cash, but you have so much time in front of you. And when you realize that the time is the part of the finance equation that makes all the difference, like that's a huge asset that hopefully you value and take advantage of. On the topic of time, is there anything you wish you at 20 years old would have done differently to set yourself up better for the future? I would say not differently, but that doesn't mean I did everything right. I don't regret it, but I made every mistake that you can. But I don't regret it because I learned from it. And I think nothing is more persuasive than what you've learned firsthand. Like you can try to watch other people screw up, but until you've burned yourself, burned your own fingers, you're like, okay, I'll never do that again. So I made all kinds of mistakes. The one thing that I regret a little bit is I've always been a big worrier, kind of a high anxiety. And I had a lot of financial worry as well, a lot of career worry. And I wish I could go back and just be like, it, it, all, it all worked out. It's okay. It wasn't perfect. You didn't do everything right. There were some painful times, but like it all worked out. But sometimes I'm like, maybe it worked out because I was worried. Maybe like the anxiety is what pushed me ahead. But sometimes I feel like I worried, I worried too much. That was, that was my, that was, I think that's the only thing that I regret. But other than that, the mistakes that I made, I don't regret. And I would still, if my, if my own kids made the same mistakes, I'd be like, no, it's, it's okay. It's okay to screw up when you're 19. It's not that, not that big a deal. And like I said earlier, I would rather screw up at 19 than 45 when the stakes are so much higher. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. A hundred percent. I think that the risk being a risk averse does make you a better investor. Similar to what you were saying about the having a higher portion of cash than advisors would typically recommend. I'm, I also lean that way. I have more cash because I am a bit scared for the future in general. Like I, I worry that, okay, well, what if there is this unexpected event? Yeah. So I'd rather have more cash sitting that's liquid there than cash that I can't access. And I think the question is not like, is there going to be an expected event? It's like, oh, there's definitely going to be. And then the question is like, can you endure it? Yeah. For me too, having kids was a huge shift of like the stakes are much higher now. And it's one thing, especially when you're 19 and single of like, if I screw up, it's like, there's no collateral damage. It's just me. And it's going to be a big ding to my ego and it's going to hurt. 
But when you're married with kids, it's like, if I screw up, I'm letting everyone else down. And therefore I, I can't screw up. And therefore I want more cash to prepare for not only my own you know, problems that I'll come across, but now I got kids who are going to run into problems in their lives to take care of. So that, that was a big shift in my thinking. So when your baby was born, what changed immediately? Were you just like, okay, I'm going to save this percentage of cash now instead? What did you do differently? I think at the career level, I'd say more, more ambition. But I was at the finance level, like ambition mixed with conservatism. If that, I know that's kind of counterintuitive, but I was like, I really got to, I really, like, it's not just about me anymore. I got this other person who's 100% relying on me to do the right thing. So I want, I have more career ambition, but I can't screw it up. So I have more conservatism now. It's kind of like that. There's like a little bit of a, it, it was a disconnect there. But I, I'm, I'll say what every parent knows too, is like the moment you see your child, you don't matter anymore. It's like this instant shift of like, I like no one, like I don't matter. It's all just about the child now. But there's a lot of finance thought that it goes into that immediate shift. Yeah. I know my audience, there's a lot of parents. What, as a parent now, are you doing to set your kids up financially for the future? Do you have certain accounts set up for them? or We have 529 accounts to save for their college. My kids are three and six. So there's not, they don't have an allowance. Or there's, there's really not much that we've taught them yet. But I think I have two thoughts on this. One is I have no clue what my kids are going to grow up to be or want or what they're going to desire. As my, does my daughter want to be a partner at a law firm? Does she want to work for Greenpeace? Does she want to be a kindergarten teacher? And the finance principles that I might want to instill in her might be different depending on which way she wants to go. And I have no clue where she's going to go. So I feel like it'd be really hard for me, even if she's three, to say like, you should do this and this is what you should aim for. I'm like, it's different for everybody. Yeah. So I don't want to push them in any way. I also know that what every teenager knows is that it's very natural to rebel against your parents. And when you're 19, if your parents say, you, you need to do this, you're instantly going to say, I'm going to do the other thing. <laughs> I was like that. Most 19-year-olds are like that. And therefore, rather than when my kids are teenagers, rather than sitting them down and lecturing them about the right thing to do, because I know they're going to rebel against it instantly, is just trying to set the right example and lead by, just lead quietly by, here, this is what my wife and I do. This is what your mom and dad do. And just, I'm not going to tell you to watch but I know you're going to learn vicariously just by kind of picking up what we do. There's so much evidence that in politics, most parents do not sit their kids down and say, this is the right political view. This is who you could. Most parents don't do that. But there is a huge correlation between your political beliefs and particularly your father's political beliefs. Even if it's not explicitly transferred, people pick it up vicariously. And I think for money, it's the same. That most people will learn so much about money from their parents, good and bad. I think most people will be like, oh, I saw my parents screw up and I'm never going to do that. Or, oh, they did this well and I want to do that. But it's usually not explicitly stated. It's just picked up vicariously. So that's, that's my general thought on teaching your kids about money. It's just like you got to lead by example rather than trying to drill it into them. Yeah. Were your parents quite financially literate? Yes. My parents had an interesting background. My dad started undergraduate college when he was 30 and had three kids. I'm the youngest of three. And then he became a doctor when we were all teenagers. So all of our teenage years growing up, my siblings and I, we had no money at all. My parents were students and we, had, we were just absolute like free lunch at school poverty. We were happy. It was a great childhood, but we had no money. And then my dad became a doctor when we were teenagers and things changed after that. So we saw both ends of the spectrum. What's interesting about my parents is that the frugality that was necessitated in them when they were students with three kids, that stuck around after they had higher incomes. So even after my parents had a much higher income, like that frugality, that frugal mentality really stuck around. It just became part of their identity, who they were. 
So my parents were pretty, you know, we had no money growing up and then we had money, but we were still really cheap. And when I was a teenager, especially, I really looked down upon them for that. It was really like a critical, like I looked at them as like, I know how much money you make and I know that we could live in a bigger house, but we don't. And I, I looked down on you for that. And then, so my dad was an ER doctor for 20 something years. An ER doctor, I think, is like literally the most stressful profession you can have. It's people dying in front of you every day. So after 20 years, he just said, I'm, I'm done. I quit, I retire. And he could do that because they were so cheap and so frugal that they had saved up enough that they could just retire whenever they wanted to. Yeah. And that was the moment, which is not that long ago. This is like in the last 10 years. I was like, I get it now. The reason you are so cheap is not because you are just a cheapskate. It's because you saved your money so that you could control your time and have full independence and autonomy. The moment he wanted to quit, he just said, I'm out of here. And he had all these colleagues who were just as stressed as he was, but they had a bigger house and a nicer car and their kids went to private schools and they couldn't quit. And that was like a big shift in my thinking of like, I want wealth, not for nicer stuff. I, I, I like nice homes and nice cars, but the reason I want wealth is to have total independence in my life. I don't want to rely on any on anyone else. I don't want to rely on any career. I don't want to rely on any boss. I want to wake up every day and just say, I can do whatever I want today. And when my dad woke up one morning and he said, I want to quit and he did it, I was like, that's, that's the dream. I want total independence and autonomy. So that's how I think about wealth today. It's not to gain nicer stuff, more flashy stuff. It's I want total independence and autonomy in my life. A hundred percent. And I, so when I graduated from law school, I had over $200,000 of debt and I made it a priority to continue to think like a broke law student, even though my first job as a corporate lawyer was paying 200K a year. I still like, I was walking 30 minutes to work in my suit instead of taking a $3 bus. Like I very much continued to live as if I didn't have any money. And that was the, looking back, that was the best thing I could have done because it's very hard once you inflate your lifestyle to go back oh, down. Oh yeah, people are very, very sensitive hard. to retrenching yeah. their lifestyle. It hurts. Whereas it's very easy to go up. Oh, it's you very- go from the Honda to the BMW, it's great. You go yeah, from the BMW back to the Honda, your life's over. It's over. It's tough. <laughs> people are really, and I think people should be careful when they have a windfall, especially, to not overdo it. Because if you're going to have to retrench, it's going to be one of the most painful things you ever do. People are very sensitive about that. And I say it's even harder. I don't have kids myself, but I see it's even harder with parents with kids. Once you start to send your kids to the private schools. Oh, yeah. Then, you have to pull them out. Oh, yeah. That's, you f- you, you can, feel like you failed as a parent. Yeah. So I think about that a lot too. My wife and I do it. Like, what lifestyle do we want to give our kids? So A, they don't grow up to be spoiled little brats. But B, like, if we did have to retrench, is that going to destroy their social lives, destroy their feeling, sense of dignity? Like, that's a, that's a tough thing. Are you quite frugal like your parents? Maybe not as much as my parents, but we have a really high savings rate. It's like, it's, it's all relative. We save most of what, of what we make. What's your biggest splurge you've had in the past year? It's not, it's really not... Not much. I, I like I like to fly first class. That's it. That's, oh, that's nice. The only, that's the you only, pay cash? Yeah. Wow. It's crazy, I know. But you that, don't do the it. points game at all? I do, but I bank them up a lot. And sometimes I'll cash them in. Okay. That's the only thing. And that's, that, that's a big thing. That is. But that's the only thing where it's, other than that, it's, we, we haven't really changed that much in a long time. But even, even the first class, I, I do fly first class only if I can buy it, get it free with points. But now I justify it. I'm like, oh, if I'm on a 14-hour flight, I need to be well-rested for that speech I'm going to be doing. See, that's or- the big thing. And back to retrenching your lifestyle, once you've gotten a taste of it, you're like, I don't want to give that up. I know. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you said about the value of 
financial independence. Do you follow this FIRE movement, the financial independent retire early? I, I don't. And the reason why is I know a couple of people and I've seen many people who are in the FIRE movement and they retire when they're 28, whatever it might be. And within six months, they hate it. And the financial independence part of it is great. Yeah. The retire early, I think, is very easy to overlook what that's going to do to you. Particularly if you are on your way towards FIRE, you imagine this world where like, I don't work anymore. I'm going to have all this stuff to do. But then by and large, when you actually retire, you realize that all of your friends who you want to hang out with work five days a week and they're not going to hang out with you. They're not, they, don't, they don't have time to go golfing with you on a Tuesday afternoon. They're at work. And that's why I've seen a lot of people in this movement regret and go back to work doing it. And I just think like work is a, for the huge majority of people is a big sense of identity and purpose. So the independence part, a hundred percent so that you can work in a job that you really enjoy and love. Mr. Money Mustache, who was one of the kind of originators of this, he makes this point a lot too. He was one of the original fire people. He retired, I think he was 30 with 600 grand and he quit his job then doesn't mean he didn't work. He started like a home building company and he's one of the busiest guys you will ever meet. He is not like sitting around playing golf. He just retired to a job that he enjoyed and he was doing it on his own terms without a boss telling him what to do and when to do it. So I think that's a, a critical part that if you are financially independent so that you can quit your job at a law firm and become a TikTok star. Amazing, like that's great. If you want to retire so that you can sit on the couch and watch TV all day, you are nine times out of 10, you're going to regret it. Yeah. That's, that's the, the distinction that I make. For your financial independence, do you have a specific number you're targeting saying, oh, if I have this much money, I'm going to be financially independent? I do. I always have, and it's always changed. Like it's <laughs> like the goalpost always moves. In theory, I have a number in my head that lives from like, okay, if I got to this number, I won't share it, but like if I got there, I'd be like, I think I'd shut everything down and just be like, but I know it's, it's not true. I know like if I'm lucky enough to get there, it'll be like, no, I'm going to keep I'm going to You're going to change it. And I think what's important <laughs> is that your material aspirations don't grow in lockstep with that. I think it's great and fine to aspire to have more money. But if your expectations grow faster than your income, you're always going to be disappointed with what you have. Yeah. So like our lifestyle has not changed that much, even if our income has gone up. And I think that's what's important. It's the gap between your expectations and reality that creates all happiness and satisfaction. So even if you aspire for more money, almost if it's like at some level, just be like kind of becomes a game for you, then I think that's great. I think where people really get into trouble though is when their income doubles and their expectations triple. Then they're like, oh, I'm in this great financial spot. I got this great new job with a huge raise and I'm not as happy as I used to be. It's because their expectations went up by, by so much. Yeah. For the average person, when we talk about financial independence, they're reaching a point where you can retire and not have to worry about money. It seems very unattainable if they're making, let's say, $15 an hour. What is your advice? What would you say for someone who is making $15 an hour and wants to eventually achieve financial independence? What should they be doing to get there? There's two parts of it, like income and, and expenses. And breaking that down, so much of modern spending is spending to show other people how much money that you have. And what you actually need to live a pretty happy, dignified life, if, you, if your expectations are low enough, is really not that much money. Particularly if you're a single person or you're, you're a couple that's on the same page doing this, it's not tremendous. And I think people would be surprised how much modern spending is just like the keeping up with the Joneses effect of whether it's like travel, not travel for enjoyment, but travel for Instagram photos to mm -hmm. show people where you've traveled and clothes and cars and whatnot is just, it's just, I always say like a lot of spending is the gap between your ego and your income. 
it's like so much of, of what we spend, not all of it, but so much of what we spend is just to signal to other people that you've made it. And if you can subtract at least part of that from your life, most people would be surprised at how little you can spend and live a happy, dignified life. Mr. Money Mustache, we mentioned before, he was the first to show that he was married with a kid and his all-in total spending, he owned his house outright, so take, take housing payments out of the equation, maybe that's unfair, but take it out. He was spending like 20 grand a year and living an amazing life. And so for a lot of people, there's a lot of room to play with the expense side of the equation. And on the, inside of the, the, on the income side of the equation, it's like whether it's a side hustle or just moving up in the world, it's, there's a lot of opportunity. Like this is, this true, it still is, despite everything that's going on in the world, like the land of opportunity. Yeah. And I think, what, I think a great thing that we're moving towards is probably a less of a world of credentialism where you don't need to go to the right college or even any college to have a pretty good income these days. It's still, there's, there still is a lot of that, but I think we're slowly moving away from the world of credentialism, more to a world of like, are you good? Are you talented? Are you a coder? I don't care if you went to Stanford. If you're a good coder, you're going to have a good career in tech. So I think that's a, a positive movement on the inside, on the income side of the equation. What's funny when you mentioned that, that gap between, what did you say? The gap between? Ego and your income. That's, that's usually like the, the, the amount of money that you're spending or the amount of money that you're saving is the gap between your ego and your income. That's so it's like, how so much money good. do you make? And how much do you want to show the rest of the world how much you make? Is really like, you don't need that much to spend that much money to have a dignified life. A lot of it is the clothes, the cars, the house to show other people. I always make this point too, that like showing other people, like waving your peacock feathers to show people that you've made it is not an entirely bad thing. Particularly if you're young and you're like trying to find a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a, a spouse, then it's like, it's really critical that you're not dressing like a, a schmuck. Like, it's really important. It's easy for someone like me who is happily married to be like, oh, you don't need to do any of that. It's like, my wife's going to love me no matter what I wear, no matter what car I drive. But I, I'm, not, I'm not throwing that completely under the bus. But I think people, if they really dug into it, would be surprised how much of their current spending is just kind of a keeping up with the Joneses effect. Yeah. Even myself, when I look back at 10 years ago, the way I was spending, when I had no money, I was in college working at Subway and all of my Subway income, I would take it to the mall and buy shoes that I didn't, I yeah. couldn't afford, purses that I couldn't afford. Yeah. But then it gets tough because at that time, I remember I was buying coach purses, but there's always a level up. Like I was oh, proud yeah. of my $200, $300 coach purses and was carrying them around. But then you have the people at my school who were carrying the Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton, and right? it goes up from there. And then it goes ne to the- ne Never ends. I don't know what's next, maybe a Birkin. I was gonna say the Birkin, I'm, I'm not an expert at this. I also but don't there's, know, but I know. I know there's some that get in five figures really quickly. It's never ending. Six figures maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It gets nuts. And what's so funny now is like, now I, I just cannot wear brand name clothing. I feel like. See, that's smart. <laughs> but do you think that's like a wisdom as, as you get older? That when you're 19, you can't really piece together? Or maybe it is, like I said, that when you are 19, that your ability to have nice clothes and a nice purse is really important. And even if you were to go back, would you tell yourself, don't buy the purse? Or would you tell yourself, actually, the purse made my friends think that I'm part of their group. And that was really important. No, I think you're exactly right. I think if I were really to dig back into what it was, it was, I was insecure. I felt like I didn't fit in. I went from, I grew up in a military family. So my dad was in the military. Most of my graduating class didn't go to college. And I ended up at this school called Notre Dame. A lot of the kids there went, came directly from private high schools. And I just, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to, I felt like I didn't fit in. So I wanted to buy whatever was necessary to make me feel like a little better, like, oh, wow, I belong here. 
And that's what it was. It was just this insecurity and wanting to fit in. I don't know if it's, do you think insecurity is the right word though? Yeah. Or is it more just like wanting to fit in when, when you're older, you have other things to hold on your career and other like wisdom that you've learned. But when you're 21 or whatever, you, you don't have other, very much else to show other than your purse, so to speak, then maybe it's not so much of a bad thing. Sometimes I get, st I get stuck on this. I don't know. For me, I feel like insecurity is accurate, but I was also young. I wanted to fit in more than I wanted to be smart with my money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I also hope, I hope that when my kids are 19 that they do fit in. I don't want them to be so frugal that nobody wants to hang out with them. That's yeah. not, that's, I, that, would, that would be a terrible thing. In that situation, I'd say, please go buy the purse so that they'll like it. Like, it's a really tough, I think there's no black and white answer for these things. No, it's a really tough thing. There's not. But I'm glad I'm not spending like that now. I'm glad I've reached a point. Maybe it did come with age or maybe it, it did come with the, the confidence that came with making more money that, oh, I don't feel the need to do that. Yeah. And it is never ending. It is, you know, if I bought the Louis Vuitton, then I'd have to buy the Birkin. Yeah. I do think that when you see a 45-year-old playing that game, whether it's the sports car game or the purse game, that I tend, I'm kind of like, ah, there's, some, there's something going on there. But I, I totally understand why the young person who's trying to, for the first time in their life, make it in the adult world and show the adult world who they are, I totally understand why it happens. I understand why it happens, but I do, I, it makes me sad because some of these young people will go into credit card debt. Yeah. And then it becomes very difficult. That could impact you for 10 years to oh, yeah. climb out of that. And it becomes so, so difficult. So I wish if I could go back to my 20-year-old self, I would be like, you know what? You're, you fit in. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good advice. So during college, I was a valet at a really nice hotel in Los Angeles. And this was in the mid-2000s. There was so much money flowing through LA. And so as a valet, people would come in in Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Rolls Royces. And as I got to know some of these people who would come in, I got to realize that like some of them were actually not that successful. These people driving in in a $300,000 Rolls Royce were actually like not that successful. They spent half their income on a Rolls Royce lease payment. That was like a lot of these. And it was, that to me was the first impression of like so much wealth is fake and fake it till you make it. And the thing that's so hard about wealth is that I can't see that guy's bank account. I can't see his brokerage statement. The only thing I could see was his car. And it gave me such a fake impression of what was going on. And the counter to that is there's so many people who would drive in in a Honda Accord that you would never bat an eye at that are actually very wealthy. And so wealth is what you don't see. Wealth is what's hidden. Wealth is money that you did not spend that is just like banked away in savings or in investing. And it's really difficult because like for something like physical fitness, you can see it. You can see. And then so it gives you more and more accurate view of a role model. You can say like, I want to look like this person. I want to do what they're doing. But for wealth, you don't have that. You might look at the guy in the Rolls Royce and say, I want to, I want to do what that guy did. And you're actually like, no, actually, you, you don't. He hasn't done that much. And the guy in the Honda Civic, Jeff Bezos, used to drive a Honda Accord when he was a decabillionaire. Like, you might see him on the street and be like, what's that chump doing? Well, he's actually like an amazing, amazing person. So since so much wealth is hidden, I think it gives us a flaw of our role models and who we aspire to. And people really have to be careful using what they see as an indication for how successful that person is or is not. It's a really tough thing. And it's funny because it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, like knowing who online to trust and who not to trust. There are reasons why people with Lamborghinis behind them making videos get more followers than people with, you know, normal houses and normal cars. Yeah, It's because you... you 
associate that Lamborghini with, wow, he must be successful. He must be smart. He, know, he must know what he's talking about. Yeah. I know it's one of the most pathetic things I've ever heard. There is like a cottage industry on Instagram of renting a private jet on the tarmac. You never leave, but you can rent it for an hour and go in and take your picture of yourself sitting in the jet and post it on Instagram. So these people will literally like Photoshop clouds into the window so it looks like they're flying. But they actually just paid 100 bucks to rent it on the tarmac. And it's a huge, huge industry. I bet more than half the time you see a private jet photo on Instagram, it's on the ground. But to your point, the people who post it, now everyone who views them like, wow, that guy's in a $60 million jet. He must know what he's doing. We should yeah. follow that guy. It's so easy to fake it till you make it on, on social media. Yeah, or you wear a fake watch and it's like, oh, look at his totally. Patek Philippe. Totally, yeah. It is crazy. And a lot of it comes down to people wanting things quicker. And so they buy it before they can actually afford it. There's a story in your book I like that kind of is on this theme about over-leveraging. I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, so two of the, the greatest investors of all time, Warren Buffett and his partner, Charlie Munger. Warren Buffett's worth $100 billion. Charlie Munger is a multi-billionaire. He's given a lot away, though, so he's not as, as rich as Warren. But they're two of probably like the Mount Rushmore of investors, the greatest investors of all time. And it's been this duo. They've been investing together for 60 years. And actually, if you go back to the 1970s, 1960s and 70s, there was a third member of this group. It's a guy named Rick Gurin. And Warren, Rick, and Charlie used to be this investing trio. And they used to make investments together and interview CEOs together. And Rick Gurin kind of disappeared off the face of the planet. He was, he was still around. If you looked, like, you could still find him. But I was wondering, like, why did Warren and Charlie become household names? And no one's ever heard of Rick Gurin. And I, I heard someone tell a story that they heard from Warren Buffett about what happened to Rick Gurin, which is in, back in the 1970s, he had borrowed a ton of money to invest. He was going into debt so he could buy stocks. It's called margin debt, leverage. And during a bear market in the 1970s, when the stock market fell a lot, he got wiped out. Because when you borrow a lot of money, if the stock market goes down 30, 40, 50%, you're done. You're completely out. And Warren told the story that he said, Rick was just as smart as he and Charlie were. He was just as talented as an investor. But he said, Warren and Charlie always knew that they would get rich, so they were not in a hurry. And he, and he said, Rick was just kind of in a hurry to get there. So he wanted to borrow money to speed up the process, and it blew up in his face. And that, I thought, was, was really interesting, that the people who was Warren is one of the richest men in, the, in human history, and he was not in a hurry at all. He said he knew it was going to happen. There was no rush. I thought that was a really interesting thing, that a lot of times when people try to speed up the process above its natural rate of growth, it's just, it's just going to backfire on you. Yeah. And it's, I think that had a big impact on me. It's so natural to want to speed it up. And in a perfect world, I would love to get rich overnight, of course, but it's just not how it works. There's usually a natural speed at which these things occur. And when you try to speed them up above that level, it's going to come back to bite you. And that's why a lot of these get-rich-quick schemes, you, just, you can never trust them. You never trust it. Warren has a great quote about investing on margin, borrowing money. He says, if you're smart, you don't need it. And if you're dumb, you shouldn't be using it. Like, there's no justification to be using it. I thought that was, that was a big takeaway. But a lot of investors do. Even first-time retail novice investors, you open up an account with E-Trade or Robinhood, and you can go into margin debt. You can borrow money to buy stock. And a lot of people don't realize the ramifications of that until you're in a bear market like we are now. And some of these stocks fall 50, 70, 80%, and they're wiped out. They lose everything. Yeah. It's a tough situation. 
When you were researching these stories for the book, what was the process like? Did you take six months to just go in a cabin and write the book and research all of these stories? Or? It definitely wasn't that. It was I had spent uh, over a decade writing about finance. I started as a blogger at The Motley Fool, and then uh, I worked for The Wall Street Journal for many years, and then I started at The Collaborative Fund six or seven years ago. So I've been a full-time writer for over a decade. And I started as a writer in 2008, which was an interesting time because that's when the world was falling to pieces. Everything was breaking left and right. And so I started my first couple of years as a writer, and I just wanted to answer the question, like, why did that financial crisis happen? I just wanted to try to explain it, really simple. And I realized, like, as time went on, that I could not answer that question through the lens of finance or economics. Like, there's nothing in an economics textbook that would explain why 2008 happened. It just wasn't in there. But if you were looking through the lens of sociology, like keeping up with the Joneses, or psychology, greed and fear, or politics, or history, or biology, all these other topics that had nothing to do with finance could perfectly explain exactly what happened in 2008. So that, to me, just opened up this idea that like, you can explain the world of finance through the lens of things that have nothing to do with finance. And as a content creator, that was actually really big because finance tends to be very dry and boring. So if I could explain finance through the lens of biology or military history or something that might catch your attention a little bit more, that was a way that I could catch people's attention as a writer. So for years, I just wanted to try to explain what's going on inside of people's heads. I never believed that anyone could forecast the stock market or forecast the economy. That had no interest to me. I, I am very skeptical that people can pick the next best stock. Like I had, that had no interest. But I was always really interested in what's going on inside of people's heads. How are they thinking about greed and fear and, and risk? Because it's usually totally counterintuitive to what the textbook says you should do. And it's just counterintuitive to what people think that they are actually doing, how they think about greed and fear. So I wanted to just find these little nuggets, these little stories to explain it. And then after doing that for 10 or 12 years, I felt that there was enough to take 20 of what I thought were the most interesting stories and anecdotes and turn them into this book. That's where it came from. Wow, that's incredible. I want to touch on the fear part because I remember I was quite shocked when I saw this on YouTube. YouTube gives you a ranking for when you release videos. This is a 1 out of 10. This is a 10 out of 10, which is not good. And the fear-based, when I talk to all of my other YouTube content creator friends, the fear-based title, Recession is Coming, is always going to outperform something like Five Millionaire Habits, yeah. right? Yeah. Do you think fear in finance is a good thing overall because it makes people cautious, or do you think it's not? I think whether it's good or bad is, I don't know, but I know it's very natural. Like, pessimism is seductive. People are so attached to pessimism in a way that optimism is not. I think a lot of it is optimism can sound like a sales pitch and pessimism sounds like someone trying to help you. Yeah. So back to your example, five millionaire tips, it sounds like a sales pitch and it probably is, frankly, <laughs> versus recession coming, red alert, here's what you should do. That's like, oh, you're trying to help me. You're trying to like alert me to danger. A lot of that is just like basic evolution that we are primed to react to threats with greater urgency than we are opportunities. Like that's, that's a good thing. That's always going to be like that. But I think it's, it's, it's really true in the media too. Like the classic line in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. That's like, that catches people's attention. So that's what gets pushed out there. Some of this too is that bad news tends to happen very quickly and good news happens very slowly. And again, I think that, that there's a good side of that, of like keeping people alert to threats and cognizant of threats. But between it gaining more clicks on social, in, in the media, and just how much more alert people are of it, it's always going to be that even if we are living in a society that is been, like, growing and improving, 
with new innovations and new technologies, it's always going to be the case that in any given day, the top headlines are always negative. Yeah. There's a story in your book you told about a guy named Ronald Reed that would never make the headlines because it is too positive. But I thought it was a really nice reminder of just how an average person can go on to do very well. Can yeah. you tell that story? Ronald Reed was like the humblest guy you can ever imagine. He was a janitor and a gas station attendant. Like lived, like not only humble, but basically a life of poverty. You would not look at him and think he was a success in any way. When they interviewed him, his friends after he died, the only friend who could think of a hobby he had was cutting firewood. That was like the only thing that they knew he did other than work as a janitor. He's like this really, not even salt of the earth, but just kind of guy where you're like, oh, it's kind of a sad existence. And then when he died, he left $8 million to charity. And people are like, where did, <laughs> where did the, gen, the guy who's mopping the floors get $8 million from? And they figured it out. Like they dug through his paperwork and all he did, he saved what tiny money he could from his job as a janitor and he invested in the stock market and he left it alone for like 80 years. And that was, that was it. It was all you needed to do. One thing I regret about the book is that I think I inadvertently tried to frame it that Ronald Reed was a hero. And I actually don't think I admire someone who's living a life of destitute poverty with $8 million in the bank. I, I, I don't aspire to that. I wish Ronald Reed would have bought himself a nice house and traveled the world. So I, I used him as an example to say like, hey, you can, you don't need to be a Harvard MBA from a blue blood family to achieve a lot of success. This janitor did it. But I used him as an extreme example. And I think most people should aspire to a little bit more balance than he had. But just like anything, those extreme examples just highlight what's possible. Yeah. Hopefully you can find more balance than he did. Because yeah. I, I actually don't know if he was that happy in life. I think his frugality was almost like a disease that he put up with. And when he died, he left it all to charity, to a hospital and like a local church. And maybe he got a lot of pleasure thinking about that. But the more I, I learned about him, read about him, I kind of said like, no, it's, it's amazing what you did, but I don't look up to that. How do you think people can find that balance between being good with their money and smart and that they are not spending all of it and living paycheck to paycheck, but then also living life a little and traveling or buying the things that they want? I think it's, it's so different for everyone in terms of what's going to make them happy. The, the first class travel for me, I enjoy that. But there's a lot of things that you might enjoy that I would say, I'm not. I'm, I'm a cheap wine and coffee guy. And I have <laughs> friends who like, could not look themselves in the mirror if they were drinking the wine that I was drinking. But it's <laughs> totally fine for me. Everyone's got to find their little thing. I do think one thing that people tend to overlook, back to when I was a valet in college, I also noticed this thing where if someone would drive in in a Ferrari, I would not look at the driver and say, that guy's so cool. I would imagine myself as the driver and I would say people would think I was cool. And like that disconnect between like, I didn't care about the driver. I just wanted to be the driver so people would care about me. It made no sense. And then I realized the game that was playing is like, no one's thinking about you as much as you are. Everyone, when you have a fancy car, a nice house, nice clothes, you tend to think everyone's looking at me and everyone thinks I'm cool. And by and large, it's not true. People are thinking about themselves. Yeah. And even when they look at your nice purse, your friends were probably looking at your purse and not thinking Erica's cool. They thought if I had that purse, Erica would think I'm cool. And so once you realize that game, you're like, no one's thinking about you as much as you are. Then you're like, okay, then my, my aspirations to show off money have come down a lot. And I want to spend my money on things that will actually make me internally happy, like the internal benchmark versus the external measure of are other people looking at me? Because they're probably not. 
that realization for me had a big impact on how I spend. Of just like, I want to spend money on things that make myself and my wife and my kids happy. And I don't care what anyone else is thinking because they're not thinking about me. They're thinking about them. That was, that was really important for me. What has the trajectory... I know you went from working as a valet. You spent many years at The Motley Fool and then The Wall Street Journal. What has your money and income trajectory looked like? Are you making the most money this year than you've ever made? Yeah, yeah. The huge majority of that is from the book. Yeah. So income-wise, absolutely. Spending hasn't changed that, that much. With kids, you know, our grocery bills double what it used to be because we have two more mouths to feed. But spending-wise, it really hasn't changed that much. I think I'm really proud of how my wife and I have kept the goalposts from moving in terms of what we aspire to do and where we aspire to travel and where we aspire the house that we want to live in has stayed not flat, but it hasn't, it's gone up at a slower rate than our income in a way that I think is really important. I said earlier, like if your income doubles but your expectations triple, you're worse off. And that happens to a lot of people. And this is why you have a lot of people, I'm sure you knew lawyers who are making a quarter million dollars a year who may have been less happy than they were when they were in college. Yeah. I think there's a lot of evidence that people's happiness in life is like an upside down you uh, or their, their unhappiness is an upside down you. They're pretty happy in their 20s. They're pretty miserable at 40s and 50s. And then they get happy again in their 70s and 80s. I think a lot of the reason that is is because in your 20s, your expectations are pretty low. Most people like live in the same dorm Maybe you have a $12 an hour job. Everyone's kind of in the same situation. In your 40s and 50s, there's a huge difference in how people live. You have people who are making 20 grand a year, people who are making $20 million a year, a huge skew. And then in your 80s, things tend to equalize even more. Like whether you're rich or poor, every, everyone's body starts breaking down in their 80s. Everyone's in the, kind of in the, in the same boat there. And so I think a lot of that is like your happiness is so anchored to your expectations and those around you. And if you can go out of your way to keep your expectations anchored, it has a bigger impact on your financial happiness than growing your income does. That's, that's easy to overlook. And we spend all of our effort in this industry on how can I grow my income? How can I grow my wealth? And that's important. That's, that's good. But we, we're totally ignorant to the idea of keeping our expectations in check. But it's just as important as growing your income. If you ask me, would you rather, if my income could double, but my expectations would triple, or my income would stay right here with the same expectations, 10 times out of 10, I want, I want the latter. Yeah. I, would, I would rather have a lower, lower income and sane expectations than high income and crazy expectations, always. You see this in major league sports a lot, where like in major league baseball, the, the minimum salary is I think $700,000, which to most people watching this would be like, that's amazing. Everyone who plays professional baseball is rich by any standard. But I guarantee you, the rookie on the team who's making 700 grand, who is playing with teammates who make 25 million, he feels broke. Yeah. He feels absolutely broke. And that's, that's, that's the best example of like how your expectations can run away from you. Well, there are all these studies of professional athletes who've made millions in their career. And then within a few years afterwards, they're they done. are they're broke. They're gone. I did an event with some pro athletes a year or two ago. And one of them told me like kind of the, the details behind that. A lot of these athletes come from inner city poverty. You know, there's really not that much correlation between like how rich your parents were and your ability to get into the NBA. So a lot of these people came from deep poverty. And then when they're 19, they sign a contract for $20 million. It's such whiplash. And one of the things he said is like, when you come from a neighborhood that is that poor, and all of a sudden you as a 19-year-old make more money than the rest of the neighborhood combined has ever made, 
that money's not yours. That money belongs to grandma and your aunt and your cousin. That's their money too. You can't just tell your destitute grandma, sorry, the $20 million is mine. You keep living in poverty. I'm going to go buy the mansion. It just doesn't work that way. So the pressure on a lot of these 19-year-olds to spend enormous amounts of money is, is huge. The other thing is like, if you sign a $20 million contract, your friends and family might think you have $20 in the bank. But like, no, your agent gets 10%. Taxes take 50%. Like it goes down real, real quick yeah. to what you thought it would be. So all these people, even when the headline number is huge, their friends and family think it's much, much more than it actually is. Well, and it's so tough now that you bring it up that it is public information, the deals that these people yes. sign. Because there are all these studies also about lottery winners, how the best ones are the ones who keep it secret. Keep it secret. That's the first thing if you are, not that anyone listening is, but if you win the lottery, the first thing you should do is get a lawyer and tell that lawyer that you no one is going to learn your name. Yeah. If there was a situation where the lottery says, you can have 10 million, but we need to interview you, or 5 million and you can stay anonymous, like I'd stay take anonymous. 5 million every single time. Yeah, but I never thought of it like that. Like these poor athletes, it's public. It's public. It's you out can just, there. You can just Google how much money does so-and-so make and you see exactly how much they make. That's a wow. tough thing. When, you, when your friends and family are poor and they know how much you make, but they're also blind. They see your salary, but they're blind to the taxes and the yep. agent's fees and the training fees, et cetera. That's, that's a tough thing. I also asked one of the, some of these athletes, I said, if you are a rookie making 700 grand and you want to save that money, so you're driving the Honda Civic and you get to your training practice next to your teammates and their Bentleys and their Ferraris, are you ostracized from the team? She said, yes, absolutely. So that's a really tough thing. They really feel like they have to keep up with their teammates. And it's like you're a, a poor person living in Beverly Hills and you have to keep up with your neighbors. So not that I have sympathy for people making 700 grand <laughs> in their early 20s, but I think it's harder than people from the outside would think. So speaking of business models and how people get paid, this is your, here it says 1 million copies sold, but now you've just hit 2 million copies sold. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> how does the book business work? Is there a signing bonus? Like, how does, how do you make money off of this? Well, I had an interesting path towards it because I thought the idea for psychology money was good. I was really excited about it. And every publisher in the United States turned it down. Every single one. And not only did they turn it down, but some of them were pretty vicious about, there's no way this is ever going to work. Don't even try. And those are the ones who are kind enough to return our emails. So everyone rejected it. There was a small publisher in London called Harriman House who actually published the book. And they're amazing people. I've really fallen in love with them. They're great. But they were just, they were the only ones who were willing to do it. And so I took that, I signed with them out of, out of desperation. And I, I ended up loving them. But at the time it was just like, I'll sign with you because you're the only ones who are willing to give me a chance. So that was no advance. They're a small publisher, but kind of a larger backend deal, the backend royalty. So it, it, it ended up working out. Now, most people, the, how it's traditionally worked is you would get an advance and 99% chance that's the only money you're ever going to see. You're not going to earn out your advance through royalties. It's like you get a check up front and that's, that's your payment for the book. And if it was a blockbuster success, maybe there'd be royalty payments after that, but that, it didn't happen that often. I think it's moving much towards, it's moving more towards the idea of no advance, but a bigger back end. That tends to be how it's, how it's going to be. Now, I think for the majority of authors, that's a worse deal. It would have been better if you got a big check that you never earned out versus if you're just going to be getting in royalties. The yeah. book business is very difficult too, where the median book that's published, and a lot of them are really good books, might sell 2,000 copies. 
And so it's not an easy way to make money. There are over a million books published every year. And the huge majority of them will sell a couple hundred, a couple, maybe a couple thousand. If you could sell 10,000 books, that's a big, a big success. And I always think of it like a seed stage startup where it's like, even if you do everything right, you're probably going to fail doing it. It's yeah. not going to be a big success. That's how any tech startup would work. Even if you're really smart doing the right thing, I think books are, are, are like that as well. And even authors that have established names can't count on their books being mega success. I always think of someone like Stephen King, like one of the greatest writers of our time. He's published 50 books, something like that. And like 90% of his sales come from two books. Like even Stephen King and John Grisham and all these people publish books that don't sell that well. Yeah. And those are the biggest names in the world. I think it's even true for people like the Beatles who probably wrote 200 songs and like five of them were really popular. Even at the, at the highest level of success, there's always a pretty big like loss rate in what you're doing. So that's true for books as well. Interesting. It's funny you mentioned that the average book is selling 2,000 copies because you were telling me earlier when you first made this, you only prepared 2,000 copies to be sold. It was either two or 5,000 that we printed. <laughs> that was the first print run that we did. And we thought that would be, that's A, all it's probably going to sell. And B, if it, if it sold 5,000 copies, I would have been like, great. That's like, I would have felt good about that. I was pretty realistic, both because it had been rejected by every publisher and just my not, from what I knew about the book world, that it's hard, it's hard to get people to pull their credit cards out to buy a piece of content. Yeah. So my expectations were, were very low when it, when it came out. And then what happened? We, we printed either two or 5,000 copies and I think it did 30,000 pre-orders before it even came out. So when the book was published on like launch day, you couldn't buy it because it, it was sold out everywhere. And it took us like six weeks to get it back into stock. And that was a, like, I thought it was just like a, a failure at that point. Even though like, hey, great. Like we thought it would sell five and it sold five times that many. Yeah. But it was actually like, well, no, you can't, you can't actually buy it. These people like put it in order, but they're not actually going to get it for six. So I thought it was over at that point. And it took like six weeks to get it back into stock. And then it still just kind of took off from there. And about half the sales are international outside of the United States is the best-selling book in India in 2021. What? Uh, like the India alone is hundreds of thousands of copies and it sold really well in China and Japan, Brazil. So it's definitely been kind of a, a, a global thing, not, not just the United States. And you didn't anticipate that? Zero. And I think that was the right thing to do. And I'm writing a second book right now and I don't anticipate much from that either. Like you, if you know the, the hit rate of books, you can't have that much confidence in anything that you do. So I have to ask, what is next for you? It's very hard to outdo this success, but I'm sure that you have it in you. So what, what are you planning next? I'm, I'm writing another book right now, probably out next summer or something like that. And, but I tried to spend the huge majority of my time reading and going for walks and talking to people to try to come up with new ideas. And I think a lot of people in content, once they get away from the core of what may have made them successful to begin with, once they move away from that, when they're like, oh, I'm going to go work on these other projects, and they lose the core of what they had to begin with. So I don't want to do that. I still want to spend the huge majority of my time just casually reading and listening to podcasts and talking to friends and whatnot. I really don't want to lose that. I, got, I, I remember the extreme example of this, not to compare either of us to this person, but Jerry Seinfeld said part of the reason that he canceled the show when it was at its, the peak of its success and he just pulled the cord and quit is because he was becoming so famous that he could not casually sit in a deli and watch how people order their food or watch how people check into their airline flight, which is where he was getting his jokes material. When he was a nobody, he would just observe the world 
and come up with little jokes about ordering a sandwich at a deli. And when he was a global superstar, he couldn't do that anymore. And he was worried that he had lost the thing that made him successful. And rather than experiencing the decline, he just said, cut it, I'm out, I'm out of here. So I think at a much different lower level, I think if, if finding little stories by spending my whole life reading and thinking yeah. about it is, is what made this book, I just want to keep doing that without trying to push it or force it. Just a bunch of casual reading. I love that. I'm very curious about the business side of things. Do you think you're monetizing to the extent you could be, or do you think there are other opportunities where you're leaving money on the table? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because I think the answer is probably yes, I could, be, I could be doing more. But I've seen so many people who, when they try to force it, or when they try to really maximize it, they end up going, going over the cliff. And I think just rather, just like trying to go naturally, and just being like, oh, I enjoy doing this, so let's do that not because I can make a lot of money doing it, because I enjoy it. Then that's when you'll probably actually make the most money over your career. That's the irony of it, is like if you don't force trying to make a lot of money, you'll probably end up making a ton of money. At the business level, the two examples are like, when Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook, he wrote in the annual reports, he's like, we don't care about money. We're not in this for the profits. We're in this to make great social media. Lehman Brothers, by example, their annual report to investors was like, we are in the business of making money. We don't care about anything else. And the irony is like Facebook went on to become a trillion dollar company and Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. So I think for a lot of these things, even at the personal career level, the more you force it, the worse you're going to do. Versus if you're just following something that you enjoy, the biggest profits will come from it from then. I love that. I think that's very good advice for people of all ages, <laughs> wherever you are in your career. I want to end this with a little tradition we do. So in my videos, there's a catchphrase, Erica taught me, and that's why the podcast is called Erica taught me. But what do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Morgan taught me? Let me give you two things I think are really important. At the personal finance level, like we talked about, if your expectations rise faster than your income, you'll be miserable. So people should spend just as much time focusing on their expectations as increasing their income. That's not intuitive to most people, and I think it's so critically important. In investing you got to realize that volatility and the market going up and down is the cost of admission to success. If your portfolio falls 20 30%, it doesn't necessarily mean you screwed up. It doesn't mean you made a mistake. You're just paying the cost of admission to earning great returns over time. And once you view volatility as a fee, not an indication that you screwed up, and then dealing with bear markets like we're in right now just becomes a little bit more palatable, easier to deal with. I think at a high level, those are two things from like personal finance and investing that are really critical to people. I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Erica. If you enjoyed today's conversation, Morgan Housel's book is called The Psychology of Money, and I'll put the link to the book in the show notes. And I have a huge favor to ask. It would mean a lot if you could take just a moment to write a review of this podcast if you enjoyed the episode. All it takes is just one sentence. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with me today. I hope you learned something. And I'm so excited to talk to you next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me. See you then.